0: Let's talk about Jesus. John 18, we are rounding the text out of the Upper Room Discourse, and we have 12 verses this morning. If you're taking notes, the subtitle is simply The Garden. The Garden. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12 to set God's Word before us, and then we'll look to Him in prayer. John 18, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When, verse 6, Jesus said to them, I am, They drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Let's pray. Father, we, we know that in this moment Jesus was bound, but now Jesus is unbound. Your word is not bound. And so we pray that by your spirit you would accomplish exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think in and through your spirit, working with the word of God to save the lost, to comfort the hurting, to strengthen all of us to be more like Jesus, and that you would make your name famous in this place. To that end, Lord, would you let the words of my mouth and meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all of God's people said, amen. I think that we all could agree that the greatest stories of the world, whether it's your favorite movie, favorite novel, old ones, ancient ones, new ones, the greatest stories that capture our hearts are when the lone hero places himself in the place of, in front of wickedness and suffering doing for the helpless what they can't do for themselves. It's the hero, it's the champion, it's the captain. And those stories that we enjoy in the movies, that we enjoy in literature, all those stories take their cues from the first greatest and true story of the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus' farewell speech is finished. He closed it in John 17. We begin rounding this lap into John 18. Jesus is now moving himself to his cross. The battle lines have been drawn. Evil approaches. And our text today, our captain, our hero, and our champion, goes forth to put himself in between us and his universal church and all evil in front of him. And so the outline this morning comes to us in three parts. In the garden, here they are. Point number one, Jesus is the last Adam So believe in Him. That's the first two verses. Then we'll move into the second point. Jesus is the great I Am. So follow Him. Verses 2 through 9. And then Jesus is the conquering cupbearer. So rely on Him. And that's verses 10 to 12. So let's, let's jump right in to this familiar and favorite text of many of us. Point number one. Jesus is the last Adam so believe in him let's look at the first two verses again when Jesus had spoken these words that's chapter 13 through 17 when Jesus had spoken these words he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, the garden, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Now, our text is changing. What I mean is if you turn back and look at the pages, if you have a red-letter Bible where the words of Jesus are in red, you can see that we just have pages and pages and pages of, of discourse, of Jesus' teaching, but now we, uh, the text is changing. We're largely in narrative. So so we're watching a movie unfold before our eyes. There's a setting, there's a plot, there's characters, and there's still some teaching, but mainly we're observing and listening interaction between characters. We as a church family have been following Jesus together across his three years of ministry, all the way through John chapter 12. And then we sat for those three or so hours with Jesus and the disciples in the upper room Ever since chapter 13 to 17. And now we follow Jesus into a garden. These first two verses highlight for us that there is a garden. Jesus takes his disciples to this garden. They often met in the garden. And Judas, the betrayer, knew of the garden and is leading this guard, this military mob to Jesus. We follow Jesus this morning into a garden. When verse two says, now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus, often met there with his disciples. This is when the music changes in the movie and the tone gets foreboding, almost sinister. And when the Bible here in these two verses highlights this garden, these are not simply throwaway words. They're not happenstance. They're not random Jesus is deliberate what he's doing. These are not throwaway words. This is not an arbitrary setting. In fact, the garden dominates. It's it's a subtle, it subtly dominates the text, but the garden dominates the setting of the text for the next three chapters to follow. His trials, his cross, his burial, his resurrection. So, We have our text here. Jesus moves from the upper room to the garden. Judas knows of the garden. We have this text here. If we skip forward to 1941, to John 1941, we read this. Now in the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And so they laid Jesus there. And if you go forward even further to chapter 20, verse 15. Jesus's resurrection has occurred. Mary has gone to the tomb. It's open. It's empty. And she is looking for the body of Jesus. And Jesus shows up to her, but she doesn't know it's him. Who does she mistake him to be? The gardener. The gardener. Here's the point john in this gospel account deliberately sets the setting of right today the betrayal of jesus the arrest of jesus the crucifixion of jesus the burial of jesus and the resurrection of jesus all in a garden why well this is where Later New Testament writers help us understand why a garden being the setting for the centerpiece of the gospel. It's like the garden is the ring and the gospel is the diamond in the ring. Why is it so important? The rest of the New Testament explains to us by giving us another title or description of Jesus, and that is the last Adam, the last Adam. You see, if we take a massive step back and consider the bookends of the Bible, the first three chapters and the last two chapters, the Bible itself is framed by gardens. It is the story of gardens. We have the Garden of Eden in the first three chapters, and we have the Garden of the New Creation in the last two chapters. In the first three chapters, God built this garden called Eden, paradise, in which he would dwell with Adam and Eve and his people. There was no sin. It was a paradise. In this garden, the Bible describes as a temple palace, an arboreal temple palace, a garden temple palace. And when we go to the end of the Bible, when... The sheep and goats are separated and and the sheep enter into glory and there's a new heavens, a new earth, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. The description of the new creation is Edenic. The tree of life is there. The river flows from the throne of Christ. There's fruit to eat and more. And it is a garden city that we are moving towards. But to get from the first garden to the last garden requires another garden, Gethsemane. This garden right here where Jesus is. The first man, Adam, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, God made to be both the head and covenant representative of the entire human race to ever exist of you. But Adam succumbed to temptation and the deceit of Satan. The first Adam broke and rejected God's word. The first Adam brought God's curse on all humanity. We are now all swollen with sin. The first Adam brought God's judgment of eternal death upon us all. And we don't care. And our sin balls up our blindness into a fist shaken at God. But God, who is rich in mercy, even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he became flesh in the person of his son, Jesus, who the Bible calls the last Adam. The last Adam. The first promise of the gospel in the Bible is Genesis 3.15. And there a son is promised to Eve, or to a daughter of Eve. He will be an Adam Jr. And he will right all the wrongs of our first father, Adam. That's the promise that unfolds across the text of Scripture. And this last Adam would do what the first Adam couldn't do. This last Adam would reverse the curse. He would undo death. He would vanquish Satan. He would reconcile those who repent and believe this good news, reconcile them to God himself as the father's beloved children. And all that the first Adam did took place in the garden. And so all that the last Adam did and does takes place in this garden, unnamed in John, the garden of Gethsemane. You see, in the Bible, this setting that John gives us alerts us. If we are careful Bible readers and thinking theologically of how the Bible fits together, all this takes place in the garden. To go from the first garden to the last garden requires this garden. You see, the garden is where the first Adam succumbed to temptation and sin, but this garden is where the last Adam will conquer temptation and sin. Father, let this cup pass for me, but nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. The first garden is where the first Adam broke God's word. And this garden is where the last Adam obeys God's word. The first garden is where the first Adam betrayed humanity to separate us from God. And this garden is where the last Adam is betrayed by humanity to bring us to God. The first garden is where the first Adam brought death to all people. And this garden is the garden where the last Adam brings life to all who believe. The first garden is where the first Adam gave Satan the victory. And this garden is where the last Adam breaks Satan's skull. One author, commentator, says it this way. The first garden was the place where death was born out of life and this second garden was the place where life was born out of death the garden here in john sends a theological signal to all who have ears to hear that jesus is in fact the last Adam and that we are to believe in him. He is the hero. He is the champion. He is the captain to whom we have looked and longed but didn't know it was him. It's him. He's here. He's doing it. And this moves us then to the showdown. Point number two, Jesus is not just, if you can say it that way, the last Adam. He is also the great I am. So don't only believe in him but follow him. Look at verses let's look at verses 3 through 9. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there to the garden with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. We need to walk slowly through this text to capture the details. This is it's it, it. happens in the flash of an eye. It's you've turned the chapter. You're reading these verses. You're getting some setting. You're 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 moving on, and you can move quickly past this. What is taking place here? Look look at verse three. Verse three. Judas, having procured a band of of soldiers. So so Judas is leading this procession, this military mob to get Jesus. Do you remember? The last time we saw Judas, the last time we saw the betrayer was back in 1327. In John 1327, Jesus had finished washing all of their feet, including Judas's. And then the other gospel accounts show us that he gives him a morsel of bread and then Judas leaves with the permission of Jesus. Jesus dismisses him. But do you remember what 1327 says? Satan entered Judas. Satan never leaves. So do you see the picture? Here is Jesus, the last Adam, and Satan comes slithering into the garden, this time not as a snake, but the snake that is Judas. He comes. It's another Genesis 3 all over again, but not all of Genesis 3. Now Judas, or rather Satan in Judas, is leading a group into the garden. Ironically, when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, God put cherubim, angels there with flaming swords. And now here comes the band of robbers and soldiers coming into the garden with flames and swords to kill the last Adam. And notice the group. I I wonder what you picture in your mind. Notice the group. It says officers or temple police. So the religious leaders, the chief priests and Pharisees, they send the Jewish military, which were the temple police, to go get Jesus. But the, the my ESV also says a band of soldiers. How many is that? Well, the Greek word behind band of soldiers refers to 600. Now, in some occasions, the 600 could be reduced to what's called a maniple, which is 200. So somewhere between 200 and 600 Roman soldiers. We're talking about the world's most elite military fighting force, shields, swords, armor, Helmets, feet, everything that is all fit and ready for one purpose human battle tanks. 200 to 600. There are so many men, so many soldiers that even though it's the full Passover moon, all you could probably see is the glint of the moonshine on all of their armor that goes beyond what the eye can see. Hundreds of soldiers and the Greek. Or, and the Jewish military police, you have, in other words, the entire world, Jew and Gentile, united to come out and to take Jesus. This is a huge military mob to take down one man. And what does Jesus do? Jesus does what the first Adam should have done. Do you see the detail in the text? Look at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Who's coming out to meet whom in this passage? It's Jesus. He's not going to hide behind an olive tree, he's not leaving behind a back door in the garden. Know what does Jesus do? Knowing all things, as God in the flesh, he gets up off the ground. Does does he still have, does he have blood stains on his forehead from when he was praying in the other gospel accounts for the Lord to take that cup from him? And he sweat those great drops of blood. Did Jesus use the back of his hand? Is it across his brow? But Jesus gets up and Jesus walks to them. And who interrogates who? Jesus does. Whom do you seek? Jesus walks up to confront them. He comes to them. He meets them head on. And he's the one to first question them. Whom do you seek? What what was the look in Jesus' eyes in this moment? What was the expression on his face? Did he have the blood there? What was the sound of his voice? We don't know what he looked like. We don't know the expression. We don't know about the blood but what we do, we don't know what his voice sounded like, but we know this, the effect of the sound of his voice. Oh, whom do you seek? And then verse 5, they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And now all of our translations show Jesus' reply as saying, I am he. And if you look at he, it should be italicized in your translation. And that that's a signal that your English translators are saying that, well, it's, He is not in the Greek, but we're putting there to smooth out the English. so It's a little bit easier to understand. I think they should not have done that. They should not have done that. Because what Jesus is really saying in the Greek is ego ami, I am. And what book are we in? We are in the Gospel of John. Now, I recognize that this is the 60th sermon in our time together in the Gospel of John. So it's been a little while since we have reflected upon the fact that the gospel of John is built around the centerpiece of Jesus' seven great I am statements. And his other statements before Abraham was, I am. Or when, the, when he's walking on the water and the disciples see him and they fear and he says, don't worry, I am. Now for a final time, Jesus says, who are you? And he says, I am. Over and over in this book, we have seen that Jesus is the great I am. He is the voice from Moses' burning bush with flesh on. Jesus is the one, now with skin on, who hid Moses in the cleft of the rock, Exodus 33 and 34, and manifested God's glory in his presence by saying God's name, So so Jesus is not merely saying, I'm the one you're looking for. No, when Jesus says to them, I am, it's in this moment that the suffering servant, who also makes a whip to strike the men and turn over tables in the temple, Jesus, who humbled himself and emptied himself, it's in this moment that when Jesus says, I am, the God-man flexes. Jesus revealed his glory to Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. In this blink of an eye moment, as long as it took Jesus to say, Ego Amy, I am, Jesus reveals his glory to this band that's come out to him. Here in the garden, the last Adam who is also the great I Am, sounds forth His voice, the very voice that flung all creation into existence, the very word that upholds the universe by the word of His power. When Jesus walks up to them, He questions them. It's His garden. He's the gardener. He's the last Adam. They're the intruders. They come in, and when Jesus says, I Am... Verse 6 says, they drew back and fell to the ground. They're not falling forward in worship. They are not retreating to a defensive position. The language of drew back and fell to the ground is just too gentle to describe what Jesus did to them. No, they were cast back and thrown down to the ground as if trampled underfoot with the utterance of his name ego amy i am jesus smote the mob was it 200 soldiers was it 600 soldiers not to mention the jewish soldiers rome's armed train fighting elite were rendered less than nothing but like leaves blowing in the wind of his word scattered back and falling on the ground the religious leaders tumbled backwards. And do you remember the scene? Who is at the head of the mob? Judas. But not really Judas, Satan in Judas. And so here Jesus stands in the full moon, in the night, torches fallen to the ground, soldiers laid out. Helmets over face and off. Shields fall to the side. Swords dropped. Clubs put down. These men are laid out like a wave. And at the last Adam's feet, I think cowers Satan in the person of Judas. That's why I say the God-man flexed. One commentator says it this way. It's as if the one they seek... Is in the position of authority, accessible only by his permission and his will. The entire scene is commentary on John chapter 1's opening declaration regarding the world. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. They fell to the ground as if a vanquished enemy and great army. Hundreds came to take his life, and they could make no claim on him. They were hopelessly outnumbered by an army of one. That's what Jesus' voice sounded like in that moment. Doing what Adam should have done when the serpent crept up to Eve. When Satan slithered into the garden, he was doing it again. He was doing it again. And he's trying to take away both the last Adam and the last Adam's future bride, the universal church. But he, crushing Satan under the foot, wasn't Jesus' objective in this moment. That's when he returns. So verse 7 is almost comedic then. It's comedic in that Jesus asks them a second time, I said, whom do you seek? Were they shaking? They're still getting up and pulling the helmet back off over their eyes, looking for the the sword to put back in the sheath. And Jesus asks them the very same question he asked them the first time, and look at what just happened. What's going to happen now? So I wonder what their voice sounded like. Are they still falling at the foot of Christ? What is Satan thinking How much apprehension and trembling is in their voice? Are are, are they hushed now when they have to repeat in Jesus' second interrogation? Do they they have a quavering voice, no longer saying we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth? Maybe they now say Jesus of of Nazareth, and maybe they even flinch. And pulling back on the throttle, revealing his glory, Jesus repeats, I told you, i am let these men go so that's why i said it's a blink of an eye it's a it's a flex it's it's just that moment where we know who's in control we know who the powerful one is we know who's the boss in this case it's it's jesus and here jesus gives his life for the disciples so that they can go So the commentator I mentioned before, there's a paradox involving this conflict. However, for the sovereign control of Jesus has made clear that the conflict is less about what the world is doing to Jesus and more about what Jesus is doing to the world. So whereas the first Adam in the first garden followed his bride into sin, Leading to both of their demise, here, the last Adam in the garden begins to give his life for the salvation of his universal bride. And that leads us to our third and final point. Jesus is the conquering cupbearer, so rely on him. Now come back to the scene. They're getting up off the ground while Jesus is probably still speaking to them. Whom do you seek? And Judas is having to pick himself up and collect himself. And look at what verse 10 says. Then Simon Peter, having drawn a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. You can't fault Peter. We, we know that he's impetuous. We know that he makes mistakes. We know that he's going to be denying and betraying Jesus in a few moments in this evening to unfold. But what does Jesus, rather, what does Peter see? Peter sees Jesus with the breath of his mouth, the sword of his mouth, striking down these enemies. And so it makes sense that Peter, who loves Jesus, is now going to fight for the kingdom. And so what does he do notice that the detail in the text peter who's likely right-handed is drawing his sword from his left hip and with an upswing cuts off the ear of malchus now i don't think it's a precise uh warning shot off the starboard bow i think that what what peter was trying to do was to cut off the head of malchus and he missed in the heat of the moment So yes, it may be true that Peter's being impulsive, and we see this happen, but why does John, or rather the Spirit, put this detail in the text? Yes, Peter's being impulsive, and yes, we find out that Jesus tells him, put the sword back. So what we do see is that Peter's being impulsive, but from a biblical perspective, Peter is being theological. Have you ever thought about that? How was Peter being theological by trying to cut someone's head off? What do I mean? I mentioned earlier in the first point, Genesis 3.15, the first promise of the gospel. And in that first promise of the gospel, it includes this future Adam having his heel bruised by Satan and yet crushing Satan's head underfoot. And when Genesis 3.15 unleashes that promise, it unleashes the promise as a theme that unfolds across Scripture. I would encourage you, if you haven't noticed it before, notice how often, especially in the Old Testament, whenever there's conflict or a prophecy or something, you're going to see that there's always comments about destruction, cutting, or crushing of the enemy's heads and necks, that's because it's a literary gospel theme unfolding from Genesis three fifteen and on. Do you do you remember Jael and Sisera? What she did to the bad guy? Remember that moment in the Book of Judges when Sisera goes into her tent to hide from the Jewish army, and he lays down and falls asleep. What does that gentle woman do? She takes the tent peg goes up to his sleeping body, places it on his skull, and with a mallet, drives it through his skull and into the ground so he was stuck there. She's a good woman. And I think that we should do that as a craft in Sunday school for our children. (laughs) What about David? Do you remember young David? when he went out to the uncircumcised Philistine who was defying the armies of God and that young teenage man ran forth to the, uh, the battle machine that Goliath was armed with stones to take out Goliath and his brothers and, and when David slings the stones at Goliath he takes out his kneecaps, right? Nowhere did the stones land embedded right in Goliath's skull And that serpent falls. And not to be outdone, David, who does not have a sword, walks up and takes Goliath's sword and cuts off Goliath's head. And given the terrain and the size of the armies in the battlefield, David would have had to have picked up that head and held it overhead for all to see the head of the crushed enemy. And in fact, fun fact, First Samuel 17 verse 54 lets us know that David the teenager carried around that trophy for days until he returned to Jerusalem and brought the head of Goliath there just hanging out with the teenager sort of one hand head in the other also another suggested craft for upstairs <laughs> what is the name of the place where Jesus was crucified place of the skull Golgotha and that's why you've heard me refer to the the cross like a dagger into the skull of who of Satan so Peter going for the head is not theologically wrong it's just wrong in this gospel moment Peter Going for the head stands in a rich biblical stream, but in this case, it's the wrong head to go for and the wrong person to go for it. The head was not for Peter's to take. The head was for the son of David to take, Jesus Christ, the last Adam, the great I Am. That's why Jesus stopped Peter, and though it's not recorded in John, heals Malchus's ear. This was not, verse 11... The time to wield a sword, this was the time to drink a cup. It was the wrong implement in the hand. Verse 11, shall I not drink the cup that the Father's given me? And that language of the cup is rich Old Testament prophetic imagery regarding the wrath of God poured out. Psalm 75, Isaiah 51 Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah 49, Revelation 14, Revelation 16. And a hint in Ezekiel, the cup is rich imagery. God requiring his enemies to take a cup and drink it to the dregs of his wrath. You see, the cup that Jesus is going to drink, that he did drink, was not his cup to drink because he deserved it. It was your cup that he drank. It's my cup that he drank. We're the ones who have lied. And that makes us liars. We are the ones who have lusted, committing adultery in our hearts. We are the ones who have coveted. We are the ones who have murdered with our thoughts and our words We are the ones who have dishonored our parents. We are the ones who have stolen. We are the ones who have gossiped. We are the ones who have slandered. We are the ones who have created division. We are the ones who have taken the Lord's name in vain, disregarding and indifferent to him. I don't care. We are the ones who have made functional gods out of anyone or anything other than Jesus. We are the rebels. We are the insurrectionists. We are the ones who call evil good and good evil. We are the ones, all humanity commit infinite sins against an infinite God and deserve his infinite wrath. And this God became man to hang on that cross that was yours to hang on. Jesus substituted himself for your salvation He bore God's wrath on himself so that you could bear God's grace. And as the last Adam, he was righting all the wrongs that you have wronged. Jesus bled so you could live. Jesus was forsaken on the cross so you could be welcomed. Jesus was crushed. So you could be made whole. Jesus drank the cup of the father's wrath so that you could sit at the table of the father's feast. That's what God is like. That is what he has done for us. And so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him away. It's not that Jesus is being arrested against his will. He is surrendering himself to accomplish the Father's will. These men and Satan have no power over him. So church, in this moment, behold your God. Jesus is the last Adam. So believe in him. And if you're here this morning and you don't yet trust Christ, know that this this man, champion, hero, and captain, is the only Savior to rescue you from you, and more importantly, you from God's eternal wrath. Jesus is the last Adam. Believe in Him. Church, Jesus is the great I Am. Follow Him. Walk in His ways, because He is our forerunner. And Jesus is the conquering cup bearer. He has paid it all. The cup is empty. He could say it is finished. It is done. Paid in full. So rely on him and his grace and his righteousness. Not your own because you don't have it. Treasure and cherish what he has given you. Rely on Jesus Not just for your salvation, but your sanctification to walk in the courage of his ways in this world until he brings us home. Amen. Amen. Lord, we thank you for the gift. Of Christ. Lord, we thank you for the gift of this this brief moment. That we can move so quickly past in our own reading to be reminded and to see you showing through just simply the setting of this scene and more that Jesus is more than we can hope and dream. And that by Jesus alone, you change our hearts to bring us from death to life and darkness to light. So Lord, this morning, save the lost, bring back the wayward, comfort the hurting and strengthen, bless and build your church, we pray in Christ's name. And everyone said, amen.